Well, for some of you, if you haven't noticed yet, sports is back. It's been back for a while. And, uh, and actually, on Tuesday, August 11th, was uh, basically V-Day for me. Um, my Yankees were victorious over the Braves, Atlanta Braves, 9-6. to six. That was a good baseball game to cheer as far as a Yankee fan. Uh, the Portland Trailblazers were victorious over the Dallas Mavericks, uh, keeping their playoff hopes alive. And uh, Damian Lillard had 61 points, I think, in that game. Pretty crazy. That was fun to watch. And then, of course, the Portland Timbers were victorious over the Orlando City soccer team um, in the MLS is back tourney, and they were champions. So Portland Timbers won, Blazers won, kept their playoff soap alive, and the Yankees won. So it was a it was a victory day for me. It made me feel pretty good having my favorite teams be victorious that day, and I was able to share in their victories, especially. You know, right afterwards and pumping my fist in the air and, and cheering uh, because my teams were victorious. I was victorious, too. And actually, the real uh, vic- victory day happened 75 years ago, making the Allies uh, victory over Japan. Uh, it, it marked that uh, Allies victory over Japan during World War II. And it followed the, the dropping of that devastating uh, atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima on August 6th and then uh, Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. Now, veteran groups and, uh, and their supporters observe Victory Day on the second Monday of, uh, of August each year. Now, Rhode Island is the only state in the United States that celebrates it as a holiday. So, but this year, it was on Monday, August 10th, this last, this last week, a day before my own little Victory Day. But the announcement of the Japanese surrender set off street celebrations from coast to coast in the United States. And that's where the famous photograph happened that you see that features a sailor presumably returning home from the war and then kissing a a woman at Times Square in New York York City on August 14, 1945. Famous picture. You've probably seen that. Because of that victory, everyone in the United States was victorious, too. In 1675... Some nine years after the terrible fire in London, Sir Christopher Wren laid the first foundation stone in what was to be his greatest architectural achievement, the building of St. Paul's Cathedral. It took him 35 long years to complete this task, and and when it was done, he waited breathlessly for the reaction of Queen Anne. And after being carefully shown through the structure, she summed up her feelings for the architecture in three words. It is awful, it is amusing, and it is artificial. (laughs) Now, you might have expected Sir Christopher Wren to be heartbroken and depressed by Queen Anne's statement, but he wasn't. You see, language has changed through the years, and in 1710, the word awful meant uh, awe-inspiring. The word amusing meant amazing, and, uh, (laughs) and the word artificial meant artistic. So now, to our ears, what might sound like devastating criticism was actually, in that time, words of measured praise. Now today, uh, we're going to look at a a, a psalm that uses ancient words of measured praise to describe a God who is victorious. And I trust that through Psalm Psalm 9, that we're looking at here today, this song of victory, we'll discover that because God is victorious, we are victorious So if you haven't yet, turn to Psalm 9 with me, and uh, let's be ready to look through this psalm together. Now, 
before we actually go go through it, let me let me set you up with some interesting things to know first about Psalm nine, and then allow me to get a so allow, allow me to get a little academic with you right now, if that's okay. First of all, Psalm nine. You see my friend back there. He does round of applause. Psalm nine is uh, the first psalm in this collection of psalms that is chiefly a song of pure praise. Uh, verses 1 through 12 contains praise for past deliverance, and then verses 13 through 20 contains prayer for future deliverance. And the psalmist is so confident in his prayers that they also seem to be praise. And in the Greek and Latin versions of the Bible and in the Roman Catholic tradition, Psalm 9, as well as Psalm 10 that follows this one, <clears throat> are joined as one psalm. And most English Bibles in the Protestant tradition consider them as two separate psalms. And the reason they are, are joined together by some is that together they almost, but not quite, they almost form an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. And we talked about that before, how some of these psalms uh, start with the, uh, the letter of, of the alphabet in, in consecutive order, each verse. or each, And so it's pretty interesting in that way. Uh, psalm 9 contains the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet but it omits the Hebrew letter D, or delet. And, uh, and then Psalm 10 uses the second half of the alphabet, beginning with the Hebrew letter L, or lamed. But three letters are missing in all of this, and so it's not quite an acrostic psalm. And if you're looking for completeness here, you're going to be disappointed as far as an acrostic psalm. But the important thing to note is that in the Hebrew text, these psalms are two separate works. So the original Hebrew canon of Scripture <clears throat> views them as two separate psalms. Also, the content of the two psalms is very different as well. In Psalm 9, you have a song of praise, while in Psalm 10, you have a song of lamentation. Uh, we would call it a sad psalm. <laughs> and then also, this psalm is set to the tune with what is called the death of the sun, or most laban. Some commentators suggest that this that the title most laban of Psalm 9 bears a meaning that signifies a psalm concerning the death of the sun. Now, evidently, the, the biblical Aramaic was the ha, has this title as concerning uh, concerning the death of the champion who went out between the camps. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Of course, it's referring to Goliath, the Philistine, whom David defeated. So it, it's Goliath's death that is that this psalm is kind of written about by David years after the event which seems to be pretty consistent with the theme of the song. So if you go that route, if you follow the commentators in that way, it, it makes sense. <clears throat> it allows us also to consider the victory the Son of God has over the champion of evil, or the enemy that verse 6 speaks about here in Psalm 9. Okay, enough academic stuff. So let's, let's finally get into this Psalm 9 and discover the God who's, who is still going to be victorious, in the face of our struggling and overwhelming difficulties. Uh, because God is victorious, we are victorious too. So, let's look at the psalm, Psalm 9. In the first three verses, we see here a personal praise. Now, I'm going to be giving these points here, and they're all going to start with the letter P, and uh, uh, hopefully you'll remember them that way. So, verses 1 through 3, we see personal praise from David. Verses 1 through 3 says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish 
before you. Now, a preacher named Harry Ironside, old-time preacher way back when, was in a, a crowded restaurant one time. Just as he was about to begin his meal, a man who was unable to find a seat in, in, in that busy restaurant approached and asked if he could join him. And Ironside invited him to, to have a seat. And then, as, as was his custom, Ironside bowed his head in prayer. And when he opened his eyes, the other man asked, Do you have a headache? Which then Ironside replied, No, I don't. And the other man asked, Well, is there something wrong with your food? And Ironside replied, No, I was simply thanking God, as I always do, before I eat. And the man said, Oh, you're one of those, are you? Well, I want you to know, he said, I never give thanks. I earn my money by the sweat of my brow, and I don't have to give thanks to anybody when I eat. I just start right in. And Ironside looked the, looked the man in the eyes, and he said, Yes, you're just like my dog. That's what he does, too. Praise. Praise is expressing to God our appreciation and understanding of his worth. I discovered this, this, this definition of praise. I think it's great. Let me say it again so you, you, you catch this. Praise is expressing to God our appreciation and understanding of his worth. It is saying thank you for each aspect of his divine nature. Our inward attitude becomes that outward expression. And when we praise God, we help ourselves by expanding our awareness of who he is. When we read the Psalms, we need to look for an attribute or characteristic of God and then thank him for who he is. So as you go through this, and hopefully the, these, these messages through the summer have encouraged you to read through the Psalms. And I encourage you to do that. Again, I, I encourage you before and I encourage you now. Read through the Psalms. They're very deep and rich in a lot of theological as well as encouraging and, 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 and applicable ways. And as you do, look at the attributes or the characteristics of God. And when you find them, discover them, then thank God for, for those attributes and characteristics. You know, many people are not thankful for God uh, for anything. Sadly, you can see this ingratitude displayed in their lives in so many ways. So many ways. But notice how David uses the expression, I will, four times in verses 1 and 2. He's commanding himself to do four things with all of his heart. In verse 1, the first part of verse 1, I will give thanks. In the second part of verse 1, I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. In the first part of verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in you. In the second part of verse 2, I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. And the reason for his praise is found in verse 3. He has seen his enemies turn away and retreat, and they are overthrown. They are defeated. David uses a, a special name for God in verse 2. If you haven't caught it yet, he praises God as O Most High. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew root for that is Elion. And when other nations are involved in the situation, the Bible often refers to God with the title Most High. You look in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, he blessed Abraham in the name of God Most High. Balaam, in uh, Numbers chapter 24, prophesied to the Moabite king in the name of the Most High. And in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel and Babylon worshiped God as the Most High. When other nations are involved, when others are watching, then God is, is mentioned as the almost high. 
other nations had their gods who they worshipped and proclaimed. But David recognized that the God of Israel is Elion, is most high. In other words, compared to other gods, he is out of this world. <laughs> and that's why this God is able to bring about the victory. And that's why this God is to be praised. And that's why those who know his name, not just know it in their heads, but know it by experience in their hearts, put their trust in him. Leads us to the second point here in this Psalm 9. We come to verses 4 through 10. And this section can be entitled Powerful Protection, where David uh, describes that. Powerful Protection. Verses 4 through 8. Look at those real quick. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. His rule, he rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. Verses 4 through 8. Now, God upholds uh, our just cause. He upholds that. He is our vindicator. You know, one who clears us from criticism and justifies us before others. And in this life, we may face many injustices. We may, we may be, maybe some of you feel falsely accused and misunderstood by friends, as well as enemies. <laughs> some of you may not be truly, feel like you're not truly appreciated by others for the love we show. We show the love of, uh, to them, but they aren't in showing the same to us. Uh, maybe maybe you feel like the, the true value of your of your work and service might not be um, rewarded rightly. And so you're doing all this hard work and nobody's noticing or rewarding it in a way it should be. But God is to be praised. God is to be praised for he sees and remembers all the good we do. And it is up to him to decide the timing and the appropriateness of our rewards. So if we don't trust him to vindicate us, then we will we will fall into hatred and, and self-pity. If we do trust him, we can experience God's peace and be free from the worry of how others perceive us and treat us. So trust him. <laughs> trust him. In this section also, too, David offers wholehearted praise to God for delivering him and his army from the enemy nations that attacked Israel. Notice that four times, four times in verses 4 through 6, David uses the expression, expression, you have. Verse 4, for you have upheld my right and my cause. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. In verse 6, you have uprooted their cities. He's looking back and thanking God for all his divine help and protections, what God has done, not what David has done. There are over 180 castles in the United Kingdom. And back then, they offered great security against the enemy. You get a big castle there, and it's a fortress. No one can get through it. Uh, but, but something happened. And now today, these castles are no more than places of historic interest. They're, they're tourist attractions. So what happened? Someone invented the cannon. And when the cannon came in, the castle went out. No longer was the castle a powerful protector. 
Now, in this section here, also too, David rejoices that God is his powerful protector, and no one and nothing will overthrow God. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So in verse 9, there is a change of focus here. We move away from the battlefield and the defeat of his enemies and focus on the, ba- uh, 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 on the people of the land. And it's his own, own nation, Israel, is what he's focusing on. And notice that his focus is on a particular section of people who is described as, in verse 9, oppressed and troubled. In verse 12, which we'll get to in a moment, the afflicted. In verse 18, the needy and poor. Verse 10 might suggest that these oppressed and these troubled and afflicted and needy people are treated this way because they are faithful followers of the Lord. You ever feel like that? Just because you're a Christian, people treat you more severely at times. Uh, They scoff at you. Verse 10, it says, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. These faithful worshipers of the Lord have been persecuted and exploited by godless unbelievers. But the good news is that God will never abandon those who seek him. God's promise does not mean that if we trust in him, we will escape loss or suffering. (laughs) Don't think that. But it does mean that God himself will never leave us, no matter what we face. Brings us to the next section here in verses 11 and 12, where we see a petition to praise. A petition to praise. It says, sing the praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done, for he, for who, for he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. David has privately praised the Lord on his own, but now in these verses here, he, he invites others to praise the Lord with him. And again, he gives us the reason for praising God. Our God is pictured as the champion of the people of God. And even though God's people are described as weak and afflicted and persecuted people, he reminds us that God will, will hold accountable those who have shed their blood. So in response in, uh, to this declaration, the people of God are to sing praises to the Lord. And, and notice here how David again links singing with proclamation. He proclaims, he sings and proclaims. He has already done it in verses 1 and 2, and now he does it again here in verse 11. A noted clergyman was asked by a colleague why the loud, fervent praying of his early days had given way to a more quiet, persuasive manner of speech. He wasn't so boisterous. The man laughed. When I was young, he said, I thought it was the thunder that killed people. But when I grew up, I discovered it was lightning. (laughs) So I determined that in the future, I would thunder less and lighten more. And so here David uses both thunder and lightning in this psalm as he links singing with proclaiming, praise with preaching. It's a combination of thunder and lightning. Then in verses 13 and 14, there is a plea for relocation. We see that here. In verses 13 and 14, Lord, he says, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. Now, David is pleading 
with God for him to rescue him from his situation. He says the intensity of his suffering is comparable to death. And he obviously doesn't want to remain there. He mentions two types of gates in this portion of scripture. The first set of gates in verse 13 are associated with death. The second set of gates in verse 14 are associated with the living. And he calls the first set, of, uh, the, first set the gates of the daughter of Zion. Did you catch that? The phrase daughter of Zion is basically a metaphor for God's people or, or for Jerusalem, the city of God. But David longs to be removed from one gate and be relocated to the other because he longs to rejoice before the Lord. Now, you know, all of us, all of us want to help, want, want God to help us when we are in trouble. But often, for different reasons, some, some want, want God's help so that they will be successful and other people will like them. Others want God's help so that they will be comfortable and feel good about themselves. But David here, he wanted, to, he wanted help from God so that justice would be restored to Israel and so that he could show others God's power. Now, when you call to God for help, you need to consider your motive. Consider your motive. Is it to save yourself pain and, and embarrassment or to bring God glory and honor? I think we need to check our motives when we call on God for help. And if you look in the message, uh, that uh, version of the Bible, it paraphrases verses 13 and 14. It says, it says, be kind to me, God. I've been kicked around long enough. Once you've pulled me back from the gates of death, I'll write the book on hallelujahs. On the corner of Maine and first, I'll hold a street meeting. I'll be the song leader. We'll fill the air with salvation songs. Now, there's a right motive for being rescued by God. Then we move into the next section, verses, the last section here, verses 15 through 20 of this psalm. And we see here, this, this is a persuaded providence that, that David describes. A persuaded providence. Verses 15 through 20 says, The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have, have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. Hegion, Selah. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never, never perish. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them down, uh, strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Selah. Uh, the American painter, John Sargent, once painted a, a panel of roses that was highly praised by critics. It was just a small picture, but it approached perfection. And although he was offered a high price for it on many occasions, uh, this painter refused to sell it. He considered it his best work and was very proud of it. And whenever he was deeply discouraged and doubtful of his abilities as, a, as an artist, he would look at it and remind himself, I painted that then his confidence and ability would come back to him. Now, David finishes this psalm by demonstrating his confident trust in the Lord. He is confident of God's character. He is a God of justice. He is confident that God will destroy the wicked who afflict the needy. And he is confident that God will not forget 
his own people. In this psalm, David rejoices that the Lord defends the poor and helpless as well. It's clear from the rest of Scripture that God holds a special concern for the poor and needy, just as David did. He is attentive to the cries and will bring them justice. Now, the world may ignore the dilemma of the needy, crushing any, any earthly hope they may have. But God, the champion of the weak, promises that this will not be the case forever. Wicked nations which forget the Lord and refuse to help their people will be judged by God. He knows our needs. He knows our tendency to despair. And he has promised to care for us. Even when others forget us, he will remember. And these last verses are kind of like a little mini hymn. Didn't catch that. This mini hymn is composed of two parts, separated by two musical notations. I hope your Bible uh, has those two musical notations included in there. Normally they are in italics, and in this psalm, they are at the end of verses 16 and verse 20. And you probably heard me read that. You heard a couple words going on there. You're going, what was that? <laughs> the words are Hegion and Selah. Now, Selah is something you've heard before, but Hegion, Hegion is a little different. It's not mentioned very much in the Bible. Uh, I think only two other places in the Psalms. And it might be a musical term. One really no, doesn't, one really doesn't know for sure. Uh, they haven't figured it out totally. But from my, my search of commentaries, um, one possible musical term that I like to uh, attach here to it could be a deep vibrating sound. <laughs> now, I, I think I've heard that a few times with Neil Arocco on the bass when we've been in worship before and, and we hear a big, deep vibrating sound from his bass. But the intent is for the musical instrument to allow the listener to think about what has been sung, what has been read. It's the musical equivalent to Selah. Now, Selah, as some of you know, is normally understood to mean stop, pause gently, reflect and ponder on what you have just read. So these two, two terms go very well together. And we need to pause and we need to take in what, what we have read in God's word. Let it roll around in our mind and our heart and just meditate on his words. The psalm closes here with a total change in mood from a meditation on God's faithfulness to God to, to, uh, to God's people, crying out for immediate deliverance. Verse 20, to strike them with terror, Lord, let the nations know they are only mortal. <laughs> Very interesting ending there for his psalm. But you know what? You only really appreciate heat if you know what it is to be cold. You only really appreciate light if you know what it is to be in darkness. You only really appreciate friendship if you know what it is to be lonely. And you only really appreciate being full if you know what it is to be hungry. I think that's what David is kind of getting at here in this last verse. He is saying that in order for men and women to really see and appreciate who God is, they must first realize their own human weakness and helplessness. And so David ends the psalm not in a desire for revenge, really, but out of a broken spirit. The issue is God's justice and faithfulness to his own. If God does not judge the nations of the earth, they will never realize that he alone is the creator king and that they are but mere mortal, mere men who are weak and human. So why is Psalm 9 so important to us today? 
why is this something that uh, I've chosen for us to have for our time here together? Well, we need to realize, and I trust you have, that there is comfort found in the protection of a victorious God. Admittedly, we need more comfort in our lives each and every day. I mean, just consider what you've been going through in the last four months with COVID-19. Consider what you've been going through with, with the racial injustice around, around you. What you've been going through with the protests, riots that have been happening. All the unrest, all the chaos going on. We need comfort in our lives. Some of you have tried to seek out comfort by going to different places. You've gone to the beach or you've gone to other locations that you love to go to because it brings you comfort. But that's so temporary. It gives you that comfort. But when you're driving away from that area, when you when you walk away from that, that place that you've gone to, then you're right back into where you left, the chaos, the, the unrest. And so as we come together and realize that God is one who can uh, bring that that rest in our lives because he is, he is the protector. He is the one who brings us the, the victory. And so there is comfort found in the protection of a victorious God. Now, David was a man who suffered much, but his heart's direction was very clear. He said, Lord, you are great and mighty and deserve all my praise and honor. God will make every injustice right. He will make it right again, but the timeline is his. This is why having patience is, is so critical for us today. So no matter the challenges you are facing or the trial or even the sorrow, God will be victorious. He is the victor. And because he is victorious, we can be victorious too. Our victory will not happen without a victorious God in our lives. We can't be victorious on our own. Life is not about us. It's about God's glory revealed through us. God has sent his son, Jesus, to die for us so we might know him and receive him as Savior and Lord. So even in our worst days, we would have hope that victory is coming one day when Jesus returns or we go home to be with him in heaven. So look to God for your strength, knowing he is victorious. Because God is victorious, we are victorious too. Brianna and Maddie are going to share a song here uh, to wrap all this up that speaks of God's victory in our lives. So let the song minister to your heart, reminding you of the victorious God we serve. Enjoy.
Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, Bree, for sharing that song. Wonderful. Helping us, helping us point our attention and our hearts to a God who is victorious. The victory is his. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us once again that you are a God that can be trusted. And as we go through these days, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that we are not alone in this, that we, we have your presence with us. And Lord, as we continue through these days that might be chaotic, might be out of control, help us, Lord, remember that you are a God that is in control. Lord, thank you for your words today. I pray, Lord, that it will be a, a soothing balm to our, our souls and that we would take it in and receive it and put it into action. Thank you, Jesus, for being our victorious God. Thank you, Lord, because you are victorious. We are victorious, too. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. <laughs>